0: Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to athletic performance consultant, Lee Taft. Thanks for tuning in to episode 304 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today, I am speaking to Lee Taft, who came highly recommended, by Lauren Landau at the Denver Broncos. So I asked Lauren, I think he was actually on the golf course at the time, who his go-to guys were when it comes to change direction and Lee fell into that category and was actually number one on that list. So it was great to get Lee on. We spoke about change direction assessments, identifying what's important and a, a topic that Lauren actually discussed at length and that was the importance of the foot when it comes to change direction and deceleration. Then we discussed deceleration itself and assessments and technical models. So Lee definitely lived up to expectation, but it has been quite a while since I had a guest on the podcast who has discussed change direction in this sort of detail. However, if you do get to the end of this episode and want to know more, there has been a couple of other episodes that have discussed this, one fantastic one being sophia nymphius i can't actually remember the number but it's definitely out there's actually two out there and so definitely go and check that out but over to lee in this episode and as always i would love your feedback this episode of the Pacey performance podcast is sponsored by hawking dynamics the world's first wireless force plate testing system so the hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab so are able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. head over to their website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, which you can can also schedule a demo, and follow them on Twitter at hawkingdynamics. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. So used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimise return to play for running based sports. So iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident which includes ultra high G capabilities to quantify high impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer battery life to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. iMeasureU, now part of Vicon, works with military pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defence and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about iMeasureU, head over to their website iMeasureU.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at iMeasureU. So, without further ado, over to the episode with Lee Taft. Thanks for tuning into the Pace Performance Podcast this evening. I'm delighted to welcome Lee Taft. So, welcome to the podcast, mate. Hey, Rob, I'm so excited. This is
1: awesome. I, I've been excited ever since you invited me to be a guest. I'm looking forward
0: to it. Oh, it's great. To, it's great to have you on. Like I said before, I'm always a little bit nervous. When someone on the other end of the line actually does a podcast themselves, <laughs> feel like you guys know know definitely know more than I do when it comes to this stuff. But really excited to get you on. And firstly, thank you to Lauren for um. Well, I spoke, I spoke to him about who are his go-to guys in this at the air of speed and change direction. And you're, I think he replied within two minutes saying, Lee's your man.
1: So oh, that's perfect. Great. He's he's awesome too. I, I uh, he's such a great guy, great coach. So I'm honored he said that. Yeah, I think he's actually on the golf course. So was he?
0: does he play golf? Am I just making that up?
1: He could be. He could yeah. be. I don't know. But yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. He's a great athlete.
0: Yeah, he came back to me straight away saying, Lee Taft, that was it. And then, <laughs> uh, yeah, he said, I'm busy, but I'll, I'll come back to you. So yeah, I appreciate Lauren uh, making the intro and things like that. So thank you for coming on. But anyone that doesn't know who you are, do you just want to give us a bit of a background on kind of work from, from back to front and, and what you're doing
1: now? Absolutely, yeah. Thank you. I, so I started. This is about my thirty-first year in the in the profession. I started as a uh, actually my degree was physical education. So when I graduated, I went right into teaching. But right in that first year, I was the I was a basketball coach, football coach, and I coached uh, track and field. Plus, I was kind of the de facto strength coach for the high school back then. There wasn't really much going on at that time in the eighties, so. I did that for a couple of years, and then I left to do my master's uh, at the United States Sports Academy in Alabama. From there, I ended up at, uh, it's now called IMG. Everybody kind of yes. knows IMG. Well, when I was there, it wasn't IMG yet. It was still Bullet Terry's Tennis Academy, and I was a strength and speed coach there back in 1991. And so I went from that academy. I ended up at another tennis academy being kind of the director of performance and then I, that's when I started after that, I, I started getting into my own facilities. So I've been the owner of a performance facility, you know, since I think the first one we opened up was in 1994. And um, so I kind of went back into coaching, but I always had my business going all these years. And, uh, and then over the time, Rob, you know, as you know, the more you get, you know, the longer you're in it, you start to take on different. Uh, interests and so now my my strongest interests are helping coach other coaches. You know, helping younger coaches that are coming up and sharing experiences and trying to help, just like all of us have been helped by uh, you know older coaches in front in front of us. So that's kind of been the journey, and uh, you know, I still feel like I got so much to learn. And by listening to, like, I love the guests you have on your podcast and other podcasts. I'm a huge funny thing is I get up really early. I go out in my garage and I work out and I put a podcast on. So I'll listen for an hour or two hours and every single day I'm listening to something new. So that's kind of where I'm at now. I'm enjoying it. Awesome. I'm always interested to
0: hear what, what podcast people listen to. So apart from the sports performance world, therapy world, what, what are some of the podcasts that you listen to? Where are your influences?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I'll listen to business. Um, I will literally do some obscure type things. Like I have, I I have like searched odd businesses like a, you know, like a, uh, you know, maybe like a, a medical or a dental or something where people are really successful. And I listened to how they became successful, the steps they took, because I just think you know, success leaves clues, right? We've heard that before. And I don't care what profession you're in. If you if you model behaviors, uh, you got a better chance than not of being successful. So I will listen to uh, a lot of different things. You know what I love to listen to? I love listening to like neurology, uh, the brain. So I'll there's a couple really good professors out in Stanford I'll listen to um, and just different different neurological things. It's funny, lately I've been, I've been uh, studying a lot about sodium and salt okay. just because, I, because I've been learning about how that's almost like a, it's a performance enhancer if it's done right. And people lack, so there's been a lot more research coming out. As where years ago we were always told how bad it is for us, they're saying no, that, that's one of the issues that people are having is they're low in salt. And so that's, you know, so I, I literally get caught on something and I just dive into it and, and go in the uh, hole. Yeah, there's nothing <laughs> there's no hold bar. I go after anything. <laughs> there's
0: on, on that, just while we're on podcast, there's one podcast that you might be interested in listening to. It's called How I Built This. It's from MP, NPR. So it's quite well produced. It's quite um it's an easy listen, but it's it's basically doing that, what you mentioned to start with, how businesses have grown. Yeah. But it's going to like I don't know the CEO of Airbnb or oh. the, the, you know, the chief marketing manager at Amazon, or kind of going really high end. But it's um, it's their story and their personal story, but also the the business story. So it's it's really interesting. I, yeah, might I'm, have I'm, I'm, I love stuff like that.
1: I might have you email me that. Email yeah, me yeah, that. Oh. What you said because I I won't, I probably won't remember it. But but yeah, I'm always into stuff like that. So thank you for sharing. Yeah. that. No, it's great. Like
0: Ben and Jerry's, they got the they got the two guys on about how they built the business. Yeah, it's fascinating. That's really, great. Really, really I love cool. that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But just diving into some of the stuff that we had on the list that I, that I fired over, that I'd love to tap into you into your into your brain and what obviously Lauren mentioned that you were his go-to guy with this kind of stuff. So I mentioned this before, and it was taking us on a little bit of a journey. I know, that ironically, you'd put something on Twitter today about assessments yeah. and. Uh, fancy gadgets and spending loads of cash and all this kind of things and feeling a bit in, a bit inferior if you don't have all that yeah so just starting off where many people start off which is the more structured assessments when it comes to change direction so where would where, where would you start and what's your I suppose what's your overarching philosophy when it comes to assessing that physical quality
1: yeah that, that's a great question so so my philosophy has always been a little bit different from years of, of just watching and studying and and, and not, not being overwhelmed by all the information. I kind of blocked my, it's almost like I put myself in a closet for years and I said, I just want to observe. I want to see what the human body is telling me. So one of the things that I like to do initially, and this is a little bit different, is I want to assess how an athlete reacts in an agility format, which would mean so agility is more of we have to do some kind of reactive prediction or a decision making, we could say, and then change a direction um, can be that, but it but it's typically more of a patterning like go to that line, come back to here. So it's it's a little different. But so what I like to do when I do my initial assessment, assessments, and it falls under my tier system. Uh, really where what I try to do is I want to see the athlete react in their world. So if they're playing sports, because the one thing that I've never tried to take away from the athlete is I don't want them to become the best mover in my facility and that not transfer to the field court track ice, whatever. So what I try to do is I'll put them in some kind of random reactive setting where they just have to react either to me pointing maybe I'll partner them up and I want to see a move and I'll videotape it and I'll watch them over a series of reps and or sets and I start to notice what they bring to the table like what do they actually do how does their body respond and react when it has to react and change directions what are its go-to patterns where are its limitations and its strengths then I can now take my assessment to okay, I've seen this athlete have similar issues time and time again. Now I can say, okay, now I'm going to control that. For example, I might have noticed that every time they plant with their right foot, maybe they just spend too much time there. Uh, maybe they they overbend into overload. Um, so what I can do now is I can say I can design a, a an assessment where they, they plant consistently off that side, off that right side. And now I can start to really dial in. I can literally videotape from the knee down only, or from the knee to the hip or to the T-spine, and then above, and then I can start to put those together. So what I'm getting is I'm seeing, okay, this is how the athlete does it in real time. So this is what I might expect if they were playing soccer, or if they were playing you know, football or or whatever, basketball. And now when it's in a controlled setting, now I can kind of tweak those things. I can give them different variables to deal with or different pressure points to deal with. Meaning I can put maybe a band around them below their center of mass to really affect lower body or I can raise it above their center of mass to affect what I call shoulder sway um, or shoulder dump if we add rotation to it. So that's really what I'm looking at. That's when I assess, that's how I do it first because it takes the guesswork out of it when I get make it reactive. I'm not just guessing that they might be bad at this or good at it. I'm actually seeing it. Then I can go exactly where I want with it. Interesting. So
0: one thing I've got down is, is transfer. I, know I we'll definitely definitely come on to this later, but how much... How much emphasis does that have in your philosophy with regards to the, the training of this, and how does that, I suppose, how does it, how does it mold it even right
1: from the start? Yeah, yeah, transfer is a difficult one to uh, to deter, to determine, but what we know helps is if we can give the athlete context. Context is something that is very transferable, meaning. If I put an athlete in a situation where they have to match the speeds of an opponent or they have to get in a direction that I just pointed to and they have to get back, that's that's similar to what they might experience in a game. They either have to stop somebody from you know, kicking the ball around them or dribbling by them or or the tennis ball being hit by them. They have to, so they have context as to why I want them to move the, the way they're moving. As where if I take that away and I say, hey, just move to that cone and come on back, they're like, okay, I, I can do that. you know. But they don't really know, like they don't have any context other than just, okay, I get my foot there and I come back. So I, the reason I do that is if, if they can at least have context as to why I want them to change directions quickly to, to match something, maybe to get a better time or just match a partner – At least they have context, and I know that part does transfer to sport because that's what they do. They're trying to compete the whole time. And then the skill of it, we still don't know how much it transfers, but it has a better chance if there's a contextual level to it. Just moving away
0: from the skill side and onto the, I suppose, more physicality side, is there anything you do that's more structured on the physical qualities that enable the skills to then – take place any is any assessment that you go through on that side
1: yeah yeah so things like obviously we're going to do various forms of strength training but we're going to also look at a controlled pattern like a 510-5 or 505 a t drill anything like that where what we're trying to do is we're just simply trying to look at what are their eccentric and concentric capabilities but, but, and here's the part I love about this, Rob. This is what gets me excited about, you know, ex- sharing this and explaining is, yeah, I could say the athlete I look at and I say, geez, they just don't have great quad strength or their hips or hamstrings or whatever. But the thing is, we got to understand the, the levers, How if they have a very long upper body, if they pitch forward a lot when they plant, in other words, they, they have a very hinge-like moment. They, they flex a lot at the hip versus staying more vertical. Those change how that change of direction is going to be uh, manipulated. So I could say the athlete is weaker when they stay more vertical into that comp versus they might be fairly strong if they hinge more. It's just because they load the system better, and they include more, maybe maybe uh, musculature involved in that. So I can do patterns that are very much controlled, very physical patterns, uh, even just jumping and landing off a box and see what they do, or jumping and rotating and things of that nature. That tells me a lot, but we always have to investigate what's the momentum factor? And what is the, how high is my center of mass? So because that dictates where our strength levels are or power levels. Mm-hmm. That's that's interesting. So how, how
0: much how much emphasis and thought and analysis, I guess, do you put into the into the trunk itself and how that affects everything else that's that's going below it?
1: A lot, an awful lot, because I have seen a tremendous amount of perfectly placed footwork, leg angles up to the hip be exactly where you want it but it became less than effective because the upper body didn't allow the kinetic energy to travel through the ground, up through the foot, through the knee, through the hip and out. So really what we want to see if I, this is my foot, this should be my backside shoulder. So if I'm so like, if you're looking at me right now and I'm cutting to go that way, the force should come up and out my lead shoulder. Well, if I planted and I did that and it goes out my ribs, Now, all of a sudden, I'm creating stress on the knee, maybe a valgus moment or an overpronation, which we need some pronation because that's a loading, a propulsive uh, moment. But so, yeah, the upper body is critical. But what, what happens if we do this and we rotate? Now we've even weakened the system to a degree, which tells us, well, we better maybe put the athlete in those situations so they can better manage them when they do get there. So I, I'm real big on let's not mummify athletes. We have to expose them to the potential of the threshold levels we have.
0: Mm-hmm. That, that was the next point of how much of a determinant that is for potential injury in, yeah. in that direction. I suppose it's that's why you put so much emphasis as well into it.
1: Exactly. And I think what we can do is we can, we can put athletes in situations that are challenging them in less than optimal positions but very controlled. So I can literally have them do like a three dimensional warm up where maybe they're lunging to the side a little bit and then they side bend. Well, that's immediately going to create tremendous force on my adductors versus if I did it the other way, it might be more of an abduction moment. So I can do things very controlled, and gradually speed it up as they get better and then add things to them and then make it more reactive so that we we can say to them, hey, you've been there before, your body at least has had the opportunity to proprioceptively feel that. But if you've never been there before, that's what scares me. Mm-hmm.
0: Is that something that's developed over your over time in your career? or you over, Have you always had that thought of let's put these guys in less advantageous positions, potentially if it was in an open environment, potentially dangerous positions with injury, but in a controlled environment, we're all good? Have you always had that philosophy or is that – more comfortable with that over
1: time yeah i would say probably over the last between you know 22 23 years because i have gone through internships and things where i i've been around people that that kind of talked like that that were not talking that way back then and they would say listen you've got to make sure that your athletes can protect themselves when they're not ideal and that's the mark of good coaching is make it's just like you know, like in a sport of volleyball or basketball or soccer, when you're out of system, like things are going haywire, can your team regain control quickly and make something positive out of that? Well, I look at athleticism the same way. Yeah, I might be getting off balance. Think of downhill skiers. Yeah, I might be on the edge, right? But can I still pull it off and be able to still be productive and safe in that manner? And that's why experience is so great. The more you do things, the more chances you have of reaching your threshold and surviving it and then coming back and, and live for another day.
0: So just keeping on the, the the topic of assessments and I suppose initial thoughts and um, what you'd go through in them first initial phases of, of being with an athlete, does that change whether you with a younger youth, adolescent athlete versus a
1: seasoned pro? It, it does to an extent. Here's the thing that I've always felt, movement skills, so whatever I'm assessing, any of those, they're, um, they're not biased by age, right? So my seven-year-olds and my 27-year-olds can do the same thing. They can both move laterally and jump and do this. Now they do them at different levels, different speeds, different power uh, equations. But where it changes is when you're dealing with younger kids that an assessment sometimes is an intimidating factor to them. So I try to assess them more in a free atmosphere of play. Like, for example, I might say, hey, let's start at this line. I want to see you run to that yellow cone, come on back, then go way down to the blue cone and come on back. I want to see how fast you can do that. And I'm watching and I might even time them. And then then I'll say to them, hey, did you realize you just did that in 7.2 seconds? That's like a gym record for a seven-year-old, you know? So, but I'm looking at it as saying, okay, there's some things I got to work on. They have no idea. But if you walk them in and say, hey, we're going to do this, this structured assessment, and I'm going to be testing you, now you don't have the same psychological athlete in front of you. They're a little bit intimidated. But if I have a professional athlete that has been poked and prodded, and they're like, okay, all right. Another assessment, what are we gonna do? They're okay with that. Not that I don't want them to have some relaxation as well, but that is where it varies. Now, as we get higher levels, not only do I wanna know like the seven movement patterns of a, of a of higher level athlete, but I'm gonna hit the specific needs of them more. As with a the younger kid, I don't know how specific I have to get. I just gotta make sure they can manage those seven patterns that I like to cover for speed. And then, and then I can start drawing uh, my plan up based on what I saw. So it's pretty much across the board. It's just the psychological part is where I'm real careful with the kids.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It seems that
0: your assessment criteria is, our assessment processes are quite um, very visual yeah. in terms of your analysis. Yeah. How does that marry up? And this is it's it's a conversation I've had with quite a few people on here actually, especially in the youth side of things when play and and uh yeah becomes part of a of a structured program. An unstructured aspect becomes part of a structured program. And how potentially nervous people get without being able to put a number on things, yeah. would we like to put a number on it. You're a five, you're a six, you're a seven. Right. So with that unstructured more visual aspect of an assessment how do you then potentially communicate that to a coach or even a parent or even the athlete without getting too complex and I suppose over over complicating yeah. things
1: yeah exactly that's a great question and that's a concern and that's the art of communication so one of the things we did at my speed academy that I had especially in New York when I had my my Place there is I would teach my coaches, and I did a lot of it first. So my coaches learned it obviously for me, is we videotaped everything we possibly could. So I could sit down with a parent and say, look at this when your child came in on you know December, you know, first and train started. Now look at here it is April 1st. Look at the difference in the, in the movement. And they're like, holy cow, that's totally different. But I can also say to them, you know, their time that we measured isn't that much different but look at the efficiency in the clean and they're like that's what we want to see they look safer they look like they're moving better and i said they got you know slightly faster but i said this proves to us that it takes time there's central nervous system things that have to happen they could be in a growth spurt that could have maybe kind of chipped some time off them uh it could have been a it could have been a great day on that initial assessment and then the next time we tested them maybe it wasn't such a great day for them maybe they weren't feeling well so but i said the visual of how they're moving never lies but the numbers can lie the numbers can tell us i i could have i could have shifted the numbers to make them look fantastic in our favor but i won't do that but the 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 actual video doesn't lie. And the parents are usually like, that's totally different. And a matter of fact, a lot of them will say to us, well, we see them moving better when they're now playing soccer or lacrosse or whatever. So that's how I do it. And I keep it very, um, I try to keep it very comfortable and honest. You know, I try to keep it very honest with them. I'm like, assessments are just what they are. I I can't guarantee that they're going to prove that they've gotten better on these numbers because of kids, you never know. They may be real sleepy, didn't sleep well that night. Now that the numbers are going to look bad. I've seen that a lot of times at the collegiate level, even though the athletes are moving and performing so much better. Now they go take a test six o'clock on a Monday morning, being in college, that's not the greatest time to take uh, an assessment test. And they didn't do very well. I'm like, well, that doesn't prove that they're not improving. So yeah, that's kind of how I look at it keep it very comfortable for them.
0: Yeah, so so when you're going through the, and just trying to paint a picture of what people may be thinking going through this assessment, which is very much, very visual, very much based on on video. As a younger coach, a coach may see that and go, there's just so much going on there. Like how, how, how are you sifting through that? I suppose that comes with obviously experience and, yeah. and prior knowledge, but is there any specific places that you know to look? instantly and, and if, if so what are them what are them areas that to, to identify early doors
1: oh yeah Jeff, that's a great question because everything that they do every kind of task should be based on a model so i don't care if you're testing them on a squat maybe it's a body weight squat well what is the model that you live by in that squat what should it look like if i'm doing a lateral shuffle we have a model the lateral gait cycle this is what it looks like this is what the front leg should be doing so When I'm dealing with my interns or my my younger assistants, um, what I would do with them is I would just give them the big rocks. I would just say, hey, look at these three to four things. Okay, this is, you wanna see arm action here, you wanna see if they're staying in the tunnel as they move, you wanna see the leg, maybe look for external rotation of that lead leg if we're moving laterally or whatever. So then they could go directly to those four things. Then over months, I start to say, okay, well, this is the thing that, this is why you're struggling not seeing this because you're not noticing that they're lacking internal rotation on the back hip. And that's, this is, so we just give them sequences to go through, but, it, but I tell them, you don't need to know what you don't need to know. You don't need to know this yet. Let, let's get good at this first. Then we can learn it because I'm still learning. I mean, you know, as well as I do. As more research comes out, we're like saying, oh, man, we missed that by a mile. We weren't even close. But we didn't know that. And I'm okay with that. And it was kind of like to my point on that, that little post I had today in Twitter. is like, live where you are. Be great at what you're doing right now. I don't have the money to have a $100,000 assessment tool that an NBA team does. But you know what I do have? I have a stopwatch and I've got a measuring tape. And I'm going to coach the heck out of using those two things. So that's the same kind of concept that I'm talking about with my younger athletes. Just get great at arm action. Get great at where the leg should come when it recovers on running or jumping, how our hips should load and ankles should load. And that way it keeps it very simple. And they become experts at those little things, and then I can add more to it from there. Mm-hmm.
0: One thing that I've spoke to quite a few people about recently, and this is more on the acceleration, top-end speed side of things, but I'd like to – bring that into a change direction uh, arena as well. Yeah. And that's fitting fitting a, a model, i.e. A, um, a track and field athlete model, say for a sprinter, yep. into a field sport athlete and how that may cause potential issues for looking to this kind of goal, you know, um, uh, ideal scenario for, for that sprinter. And, and especially with the influence of the track and field guys on the team sport guys even more and more, When it when it comes to models and different athletes and different from different um, different sports, are you modifying what your model looks like in terms of what the ideal is and what you're trying to, I suppose, create with these athletes in these in these
1: positions? Yeah, that's a fantastic question, and I really don't change much, and I'll tell you why. I think if we can coach the models of the best athletes in those sports or the sport itself so if we think what's the best sport to look for a pure acceleration well it's track and field it's a sprinter coming out of the block so if we can get our athletes you know close to that wouldn't we know we're not going to make a volleyball player look like you know a, a, an elite level sprinter that's not the point but if we can coach to that those models we have something that we can always hang our hat on, something that we can always come back to and we can always reference. When we start changing our model for every single sport, it becomes very dicey because we're not really sure. Because now, does a back row player in volleyball have to have a different model than the the, the middle blocker? Because they do they do different things. So so I would I do, and I've always said this: the sport that the athlete plays will absorb the movement pattern they need to play that sport in the position in that sport. So a a forward in soccer is gonna absorb the movements and the nuances of how to run, knowing that they have to have their feet in position to make a play and potentially do that with contact on them. So we can take the model of sprinting, teach them how to sprint or accelerate, And then allow the sport to absorb how they really are going to move. Like basketball players, another example, right? They may accelerate explosively for two, three steps, but then all of a sudden they got to stand up and change directions. The sport will take care of that. The repetition's there. Our job as strength and conditioning coaches or movement specialists, let's build a model out of those best movers in those sports. So if I want. A model for lateral movement, I'd probably pick basketball because that's probably the sport where they they move laterally or maybe parts of a soccer goalie. Um, you know, if I want to look at different sports that those are the best movers in that particular movement pattern, then we just follow that model. You know, that's pretty much how we'll do it. And it keeps it very simple and controllable, knowing the sport will take over from there. So
0: we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Lee. Hope you enjoyed part one. So over in part two, we discuss more on the importance of the foot. we discuss programming closed versus open drills and then finish off with some chat around deceleration. So as I mentioned at the start, I'd love your feedback on this episode or any other episodes that have featured on the Pace Performance Podcast. But over to Lee for part two. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Athletemonitoring.com, the world's most comprehensive, versatile and cost-effective athlete health and performance management platform for elite sports. So Athletemonitoring.com is trusted by top development programs, universities, professional teams, Olympic programs, national sports organizations and research institutes worldwide. It streamlines data collection, centralises the management of wellness training and performance, medical and testing, and administrative data. It also simplifies the interpretation with best practice analytics, and evidence-based methods to optimise performance and reduce injury risk. So with all these features on a single platform, Athletemonitoring.com seamlessly brings key stakeholders together to build healthier athletes, more efficient organizations, and long-lasting successes. To see what Athletemonitoring.com can do for you, visit Athletemonitoring.com and schedule a free demo, or follow them on Twitter at AthleteMonitor. This episode is also sponsored by Omega Wave, which is the only non-invasive, at rest, technology on the market that analyzes readiness to train via both brain and cardiac analysis. So using DC potential and HRV to understand your brain's energy level and autonomic nervous system balance allows you to use objective data on recovery and readiness that in turn helps you to truly individualize your training and thus optimize performance. OmegaWave also measures ECG from the V6 position and this data can be used by the medical profession to check cardiac health on a frequent basis. The measurement only takes four minutes to perform, and results are visualized in an intuitive way thanks to our Windows of Trainability concept. OmegaWave is used by hundreds of elite sport athletes, military, and law enforcement agencies. They are also an official partner of the UFC Performance Institute. So, to learn more about OmegaWave, visit their website omegawave.com or visit their social media channels. I know you and Lauren went into quite a bit of depth on your podcast with regards to the foot and the, imp- the importance of it. And it's something that we touched on, uh, me and Lauren, when I had him on a um, couple months ago now. Would you give us your, I suppose, again, overarching thoughts on why the foot is so important, especially in a, a change direction? And then we'll move on to deceleration a little bit later on and, and the importance of that.
1: Definitely. Yeah. So... So I always tell my athletes and I tell the coaches and or other performance coaches, I'm like, what's the first thing and the last thing to touch the ground unless they fall, right? It's the foot. So we wanna make sure that we understand what is it that we're trying to attain when we change directions with regards to the foot, right? So when my foot touches the ground, on a cut. So let's just use a lateral shuffle. Let's just, it keeps it very visual. A lateral shuffle and I'm going to change directions doing another lateral shuffle. So when I plant my foot into the ground, I have to, I have to make sure that I'm as close to perpendicular to the direction I'm going to go as possible. When I do that, a few good things happen. That allows me to get some tibial internal rotation, some pronation occurring to the foot, I can start to load towards the great toe, I can get the medial heel on the ground. And all of those things send signals up the rest of the body to turn on muscles to be supportive but also be stabilizers or uh, uh, mobilizers as well. So now once I hit that foot into the ground, the other thing that we're always assessing is because when I grew up, we were always taught, get on the balls of your feet and don't let your mm. heels touch. Well, yeah. if I do that, we know that now the ankle joint is what we would call open or exposed. It's, it's, it's plantar flexed. Dorsiflex is a loading and a, propel- a propulsive type moment as we're plantar flex. We're going to extend and we're just less stable when I load. So if I get on the upper third of my foot only and the heel is up pretty high, I've really exposed myself to, you know, frontal plane motion and and I not only even if I didn't hurt myself, I just don't have much stability and I've reduced the amount of friction that I want. So if I have a full foot contact knowing that my shin is forward, which means most of the weight will be pushed towards the mid forward part of the foot. Now I can use that friction to my advantage. I can use the loading and that internal rotation, slight internal rotation to my advantage. And then eventually when I push off, I can go off the great toe, which now sends signals up the rest of the body through the perineals, right up to the glutes. Now I'm in a great position. So Foot's everything. Now, here's the cool thing, Rob. If my foot just turns out, you know, 10 degrees, 15 degrees, which we see happen, now we move into what's called knee glide. So imagine I'm doing a, a, a front lunge, and when I lunge, my knee just shoots way forward. Well, the more I open up, the potential for my knee to track forward versus being able to quickly amortize and turn me back in the other direction goes away. So that's why i got to be real careful not to plant with my foot externally rotated when I want to change directions quickly because I'll knee glide and I'll get way, way too much pressure into the knee and the quad having to do all the work.
0: Mm-hmm. You've mentioned the, the toe quite a, quite a bit there, quite a few times. Is there anything you do to isolate that in, term, in, a, in a training setting to, to, to help all the things that you've just mentioned?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I'm real big on, on during our ups and even sometimes in the body of the workout, we do a lot of backwards stuff. So we'll, we'll so if you, if you kind of just squat down. Okay. So if I get an athlete, just tell them to bend their knees. Okay. Even if it's a quarter squat and now walk backwards. One of the things I want them to be able to do is go down onto the tip of the toe and then dorsiflex the toe and then get to the ball of the foot, then roll through and eventually to the heel as you shift over it and then the other foot does that. So we'll do that. So they'll walk backwards like that. So what I'm trying to do is get them proprioceptively aware of what it feels like to be there and do they have adequate uh, dorsiflexion in that toe and especially the great toe because if not, they'll either overpronate or the foot will evert, or, and sometimes it'll even, you know, sometimes it'll even go supinated and they'll do some other stuff. So we really work on uh, that, but then I want them to be able to plant into that back foot and then push off it really quick. So now I'm starting to go from this slow eccentric now propulsion, and then we'll do that on each side. Then we'll do the same thing, but go lateral with it. So if you can imagine me walking lateral and then crossing over, touching, going into pronation. And then I hit that other foot, and we just kind of creep our way sideways, um, trying to open up the the toe joint, the ankle joint, and the arch and the mid-tarsal joint of that foot as well, because it all connects. If one's not working well, the great toe is kind of left by itself. Mm -hmm. So on the
0: programming from – there was when I was doing a little bit of digging around especially in some of your obviously your articles that you'd put out recently, but then again going to a bit of change direction hole on simply faster and all these different different websites talking about change direction. And one thing that came up which seemed to be quite a common theme probably over the last six months was a re-emergence of the closed drills versus open drills argument. Not an argument debate I suppose yeah, yeah. what what's, what's your what's your thoughts do, do both have a place that do, do, do does one come before the, the the other what's what's your
1: thoughts yeah yeah that and, and that's such a, such a it's such a healthy debate it really is because the one thing we have to understand is we need both we need both uh very much so some athletes need more than the other right? But again, if we go back to this concept of context, my biggest fear is that my athletes are going to be s- absolute superstars in my facility and then be terrible when they go play sports. Right? So I'm very cautious not to have them get too comfortable living in a pattern at which they can do in their sleep. So I don't want, it's kind of like a dance, you know, once they learn the steps of a dance, they get good at it. Or like the ladder, the the ladder and the icky shuffle, athletes get really good at that. And they say, wow, you've improved, you're so good, but yet they can't actually apply that very well. But those movement patterns, so the change of directions, closed drills, are perfect to attack physiological demands. If I want to work, uh, you know, strength in my hips and my legs and my feet that we just talked about, I might say to an F, hey, we're going to get 15 plants on this right foot, and you're only going to go three meters, and every time you plant, you're coming back. And we're going to just rep that out because I don't like how you're managing that right now, so we're going to hit that for a little while. That's perfect. So, Rob, what I do is I actually call all my closed drills or more fall under my correctives, okay. and then – my open drills fall under what I call my tier system, which is, the tier system is just a way of of categorizing and progressing reactive drills, tier one, two, or three. It's very basic stuff, but that's how I categorize it for uh, my athletes and for my coaches. And so when we have these correctives or these closed drills, That's how we, that's the mechanical side to us, right? That's how we fix things. That's how we can look at it and say, we need to make that better. We need more just rehearsed drills in that pattern. And so that's when we can attack it. The problem is if you live there, um, synaptogenesis, okay, the synapses of the brain, when we really need to be discovering and solving problems to become better movers, gets dulled and it goes away a little bit. So if we can just add a little bit of reactivity in there every now and again, the brain is like, okay, that's new. I got to try that again. It's like a little kid riding a bike, right? They're all over the place until the brain says, oh, okay, that's all I have to do is do this and now I can ride the bike. So that's what we're trying to make sure we don't do is don't make the closed drills the only thing we do but also don't live in the reactive realm either because you you got to fix things. You got to be able to fix them. You've mentioned the tier system a couple of times. You just want to just give
0: people a bit of an insight into what that what that is?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. So for example, the tier system is really how I assess athletes and it's how I can train them. So a tier 1 would be the best example I can give you is a track athlete. They don't know when they're going to go. But when they do go, they know where they're going, right? So a track athlete knows I'm going straight ahead. So I can simulate that laterally, backwards, vertical. I can. That's usually an entry level. Um, I can have an athlete on the very first day say, hey, you stand on this line and your partner is going to stand next to you. You know, partner number one can't move until partner number two goes. So what am I doing? I'm giving them context as to, Um, they have to be prepared, they have to be loaded, they have to be ready to go. And I might only have them accelerate for five yards or five meters, very safe, very comfortable, but they have to get ready to go. Now, a tier two means they don't know which direction they're going to go and they don't know when, but they're only going to go one time. So for example, I guess like a baseball player stealing base would be a good example. They might go to the right or they might go to the left, but that's it once they go. A tier three is just like the tier two, but it would be more like a mirror drill. So if you and I were mirroring each other and wherever you went, I went, we now enter change of direction into the tier system. As we're tier one and tier two, there's really no change of direction. It's just let's react and go. And uh, But it's all built on a stimulus and, and a perception of how to move. Mm-hmm. Again, while I was in this change direction,
0: Lee Taft hole. On the on the, on, the, on the on the internet. Um, one thing that came out quite a few times was uh, coaching out unwanted movements slash habits. And I wanted to get your, if you've got any examples, I mean, there, there's plenty online that you've spoken about. Um, one was the initial backward step before moving forwards, and there's a little bit of discussion around that, especially on the, I think it's on Simply Faster as well. Yeah. I just want to talk to you a little bit about some of them potential ones that people may want to coach out, but actually are there naturally, or not yeah.
1: even needing the time to coach out. Exactly. Yeah. So, just to give a little background on it, so back when I was a college basketball player, this was in the mid '80s. I started watching film. My coaches to make me watch film, and so I can remember he used to say to us a lot in practice, you know, stops. He'd say, "Stop stepping backwards before you guys go forward." I'm like. Well, not. I, I didn't know what he was talking about because you don't feel it, right? When an athlete takes up, you don't think about moving back. So I started studying film. And the cool thing is, Rob, I went back way back into the 50s and 60s and I started studying old athletes who didn't have people like us. They didn't have performance coaches, they just had a, a their coach, right? And I noticed, well, they're all doing it. So that started me on this journey for years and years. And this is what I really meant when I said I locked myself in a closet and I just watched. I didn't bias anything, I didn't uh, uh, discriminate against any movement patterns. And now you can't. I just watched and I took notes for literally years. And I said, gosh, it didn't matter if it was a seven year old or 27 year old or a 57 year old when they had to react really quick. 99.9% 99.9% of the times they they repositioned their foot opposite of the direction they were going to go. So if I had to take off 45 degrees to my right, my left naturally went. And I and I documented all these things. I didn't know why. I was young. I didn't I didn't get it yet. But I knew it was happening. So when I started even training, I never told the athletes to do it. But I never discouraged them, as were other coaches were saying stop taking a false step and i'm like you can't stop them from doing it that's why they it's a natural thing and then what i started to study was the the nervous system and i said gosh so the sympathetic system is really there to protect us it gives us this fight or flight and that's what the athletes are relying on even though it's not life or death it still falls under that fight or flight i either have to attack you or escape you, escape from you. <clears throat> and so my body naturally goes into this protective mode, and then it kicks into the stretch shortening cycle. And why we need that, and this, you know, this term stiffness that we like to use, but it's basically just being better at the, the stretch shortening cycle. And so that's really what it is. So an athlete standing in an athletic stance, let's say, let's take a tennis player at the baseline, and all of a sudden the opponent gives him a drop shot. Well, you'll notice they automatically one leg goes back and then they shoot themselves forward really quick. We see that in basketball. We see it in soccer. Um, now, sometimes the athlete all of a sudden has a ball chipped over their head or a lob over their head and they have to turn. We call that a hip turn. So the plyo step, hip turn, directional step. Are, I came up with these names just to describe what I saw literally back in the late 80s early 90s because i was just trying to put a name to it and uh, i knew what plyometrics was and i said well it looks like a plyometric step and the other one looked like a hip turn and the other one looked like a directional step so (laughs) you know not being very smart i was like i'll give them those names and that's where it all came from and um so but what i kept noticing is gosh i really don't have to teach that i just have to clean up the mess around it like I got to make them more efficient or physiologically give them greater strength or elasticity or whatever to support what their central nervous system is craving. And uh, so that's really how it, it all started. And that's And Yeah, so when we try to coach an athlete out of something that they do intuitively or innately, we have to ask this question. We have to say, why did they do that? And what would be an alternative that could have made it better? And you're going to be surprised most of the time when an athlete repositions, if they should not have, if we, if we deem, as coaches say, no, nah, they could have been a better strategy. The body is never wrong. It might not move efficiently, but it's going to do what it has to do in the current posture or state that it's in. It might not look pretty, but it's going to do it. Now, if we fixed the strategy, maybe get the athlete a little lower, maybe a little wider stance, maybe whatever. Now the athlete all of a sudden moves more efficient. Well, it wasn't the movement pattern that was wrong. It was the strategy that was wrong that the body used. And so that's why I always try to express to coaches, rather than getting on the athlete for keep doing the same thing over and over and again, Ask why are they doing that? And it should take that long. It should say, Oh, well, of course, they were their their shoulders were back or they were tilted. And that's really where we want to get to. So now we can look at any model and say, Okay, there it is. Because their body was like that, the body just said, All right, that's how you want me to move, that's what I'm gonna do. So it's kind of fun to look at. Yeah, so that's what you mean by cleaning up of these. Yeah, okay. Exactly. Exactly. Yep.
0: Yeah. So just moving on to deceleration and isolating I suppose that part of the potential change direction. Is there anything that you do assessment wise to dial in on that specific element, the actual slowing down of the momentum, part of yep. the change direction or
1: cut yep. or whatever it may be? Yep, yep, definitely. So so excel- deceleration for me shifts closer to the weight room than it does to speed and agility. And I'll okay. explain why. When we teach an athlete to decelerate and stop, that is a movement that doesn't happen that much in athletics. When I stop, I'm usually either a long jumper, a triple jumper, or a gymnast landing a vault, right? Other than that, in most sports, We, if we do stop, we kind of walk out of running, right? Uh, We don't usually just stop and freeze. So when we train it, what I do is I put it, I shift it more over to this eccentric loading that I might want to see in the weight room as well. So whether I'm doing a lunge stop, a lateral stop, a split step or a jump stop, a reverse of those, an angle or a rotational stop, Uh, there's like eight to nine patterns that we'll go through in our deceleration sequences. And so what I'm looking for when I assess is how does the athlete manage their mass and momentum and be able to stop as directed by me? So if I say, run to that cone five meters in front and do a left foot lunge stop. So left foot comes out like a lunge and I stop. I wanna see that they can enter the ground with the heel because that means the shin will be out in front which starts slowing down mass. I wanna see that they can absorb and the foot goes into dorsiflexion, it goes plantar flexion, dorsiflexion, the knee rides over the toe, then the quads are very active and then eventually the shoulders start moving forward which turns on the posterior chain but initially, I've got to have those quads strong enough to be able to stop that initial dynamic flexion of the knees sinking me into the ground, right? That's what I look for. Whether I'm doing bilateral in a jump stop or unilateral in, a, in a, uh, a lunge stop or lateral. So if I'm shuffling laterally, same thing, right? I want to see those types of things and I want to see that they can manage their weight their, or their mass and momentum quickly and be under control. And be under control when they do it. So I keep it very, very simple, and that's how we break it down with all those different eight to nine patterns. Just really controlled.
0: Someone, someone you know well, uh, James Baker, over at um, over in Qatar, uses the uses the K box for I think uh, around this around this area. Is that something that you believe in in terms of that? Modality for training for for this physical quality, or if not, is there any other areas that you focus your time to, like you say, this link to the weight room? Anything that happens in the weight room that actually transfers this quality yeah. out on the pitch?
1: Definitely. So I I personally do not have a K box, but I've used them and I've seen them and I've looked at the research and I think they're fantastic because man, if you you i mean you can crush yourself on that absolutely. thing absolutely
0: know? yeah
1: i yeah. think that can make you lose your lunch really fast if you're not, <laughs> if you're not careful absolutely so yeah. there's a system that i love to use that i think your listeners will find um very user friendly so it's a it's a it's three-step system of decelerating so for example let's say you're my athlete and i want to teach you uh, any other deceleration patterns the first level is what we call hit, the, hit the, the pattern or hit the position. Be able to just hit it right. Be able to do it. So I'm going to put a band around you, Rob, and you're going to run away from me. And you're going to hit maybe a lunge stop. Well, because I got the band around you, I'm actually taking some weight off you. I'm like giving you a parachute. So I get to hit all these deceleration patterns, but I get to take some weight away from them. Okay, so I, they get comfortable, they get better at it. Phase two is they do body weight, just normal. Go, Just go run, hit it, stop. And then when I see that they're getting good at it, now I get in front of you and I pull you into me. So I'm actually increasing your mass and momentum, and I can do it in a really small area because the band will pull you quicker. Now that's kind of like the K-Box, but it's done dynamically with the exact same pattern you might have to use running, Right. So, we, we, we can use that system for return to play of an injured athlete. I can use it with a professional athlete that's coming off, uh, you know, eight weeks off the season. You know, they finish the season and get ready to start up again, but they're not ready to go that hard. I can introduce it. I can introduce it in the warm up. Uh, I can do it anywhere, but a lot of times I'll use that before we do strength training because it initiates a great proprioceptive stimulus. And, and it gets them tremendously warm. We get capillarity density. It's great to do, but they're learning how to stop their mass and momentum. And it's a real nice way to introduce, and it's inexpensive. It's just bands. Just get some tubing, and you pull them or resist them. How much drilling would go into – I mean, I know you have just mentioned
0: exactly that there, but in terms of the more experienced athletes, would that be – would you still start off reasonably – Low level, or what? What would you kind of? I know you've mentioned some progressions there, but I suppose what would your progressions be moving forward to more yeah. experienced
1: guys? Yeah, right up. So, for example, and this is what I've done with like pro tennis players during the warm up, I'll put them in that phase, phase one. So just just let's get loose. But by the end, we're at phase three. By the end of the exact same workout. Now i will pulling them, so you can go through the gamut. You can run the whole gamut in a workout or you could do that over a period of weeks. You could progress them forward. But when I'm with a higher level athlete, they already know how to decelerate. They're good at it. Um, They've got the tissue qualities to be able to manage it. Um, We'll go right into those things once they're warmed up. We'll jump right into it. Now, depending on what my goal is for the workout, and more importantly, what I want him to do the next day or whatever, it depends on how much volume I'll go. I'm not a big, huge, high-volume guy. I'd rather get my volume over periods of days, weeks, that way than crush them in one workout. Then I'm trying to sc- recover them over the next two, three workouts, you know. So we might do, for example, I might say, hey, let's go ahead and do two sets of five reps at five meters on each leg for a single leg or excuse me a um, unilateral lunge stop but then I'll say okay now let's do one more set on each leg of a lateral stop so it's three sets of five reps a total of 15 for each leg over 15 meters but the thing is I'm pretty picky so if they do a rep that I don't like doesn't count, doesn't count. <laughs> so yeah so it could end up being closer to 20 reps by the time they're done but if they don't hit it right but that's why i always build a cushion in there so you know because 20 reps for a high level athlete and he's like that's that's not a real lot," you know compared to how many they're going to get when they actually play so yeah that's what we try to do awesome well we i think we could probably go all
0: well i'm pretty ruin your day but go all <laughs> afternoon and all evening i love but, it yeah but just try to keep it around about an hour what have you got? Have you got anything coming up? I know we're struggling in this time, getting out and about, and clinics and things. But is there anything you've got coming out personally that you could potentially share with people, even if it's just yeah. little videos and things that you've got online, which I you know you've got been doing loads of, which have been great and Thank were you. part of my were part of
1: my um aft digging that I did <laughs> prior to this. <laughs> Thank you, I, know. I appreciate it. Well. The the one big thing that we're really working on now is we got a little a membership group. It's a uh, it's called the speed toolbox, uh, dot com, and it's it's what it is is we're really trying to give coaches of all levels, parents, athletes, a place where they can find daily videos, teaching tools, breakdowns, and even I go into the business part of like we get a lot of coaches that want to learn how to run speed camps i've done speed camps forever how to set them up how to do coaches clinics consulting so we do a lot of that stuff and then really if people just go to leetaf.com, they can find stuff going on and coming up the one thing i've done rob over the last three four years that i've really been uh, uh fortunate to do is we do this retreat where people come to our home uh for three days we have about seven people and we feed them everything for three days. And I teach them my system. We go through a lot of stuff we talked about. We, do, we teach them how to break down film and break down movement. We go through those seven patterns and many other concepts. Unfortunately, like you said, with the predicament we're in right now throughout the world, we, we have to just wait till there's a little more clearance to do that. But because we only do seven people, we might be able to get people make sure everybody's safe and come in and because they're a lot of fun and uh and uh, we've been fortunate to have people from all over the world attend them and it's uh yeah so hopefully we get to do that soon i'm fascinated do they stay in the house do they, stay- <laughs> they don't stay in the house they'll okay. usually get like an airbnb or something really close but other than that everything's done at the house they act, We we tell them you're a taft the weekend and they actually eat dinner and breakfast and lunch with my family and my dog and they that's hang amazing. out with us yeah in the house and uh hell oh, yeah we just have a we have a good time
0: that's great and i'm, I'm always interested in the business side you no know, it's it's it comes up all the time when i speak to especially guys over there who have their, their own facilities and things but when you first started getting your, your own facility what was the what was the transition like and the, the education like on the getting to know the business side of things do you do you enjoy that as much as the Maybe not as much as the
1: coaching, but is it is
0: yeah. it something enjoyable for you?
1: As I've gotten older, I really do. Um, when I was younger, I mean, I was a phys ed teacher. I I, I knew how to coach. The first facility here, here, this is how crazy I was. The first facility I opened up was like four thousand square feet. It just happened to be a, an old pool hall where people played cards and pool, and it was it was abandoned. So we got into that nice big space. I knew nothing about the business. But I learned quickly. So what I did is I joined, uh, you know, coaching groups, masterminds, uh, all these different uh, business groups that taught me, um, you know, how to think and how to use the business part of it. And then, of course, my wife, we run it together. Um, but what the one thing I learned, Rob, that was really important was how to communicate what it is that I do, and how I can help, whether it's another school, a high school, a college, a pro team, or whatever. I'm not, I never am, I never come at them like, hey, I'm the boss and I beat my chest. You gotta, I I come at them like, I love what you're doing. I'd love to learn more about what you do. Can I sit and learn from you? Well, what that does, that allows me to get in and now start conversation and then they get to learn about me. And now we have a a level uh, mutual respect versus me walking in thinking I'm up here and they're down here. That's where coaches go wrong. So all these marketing clinics that I do and things like that, that's how I'm able to get in there. Because I respect the people that I'm after versus saying I'm the boss. You listen to me. That doesn't work that you got to go in with uh, mutual respect and then it'll grow. So when you say marketing clinic that you're attending elsewhere, you know it's, I mean? the, the ones that I run. Oh, so, you run. Okay. Uh, I run. So, so what I teach is how to get into schools, maybe a travel team club, how to get in and how to show your stuff to coaches and use the athletes as demonstrators for free But you just, I remember this, the very first one I did, I had 120 athletes and 30 coaches watch me. From that, I probably picked up 20 athletes immediately that joined up and signed up for my training facility, my business, all because of a marketing clinic. And it was, and then I did like, in that particular area, I hit like 12 or 13 schools. And from that alone, my business just exploded. But it was—it's the approach and how you do it. And again, I'm very uh, accommodating and not—I don't pressure people. Some of them didn't want to do it right off, but about four months later, they were like, "Yeah, we would love for you to come in now. We have more time." And it's just about—it's about showing them that they're not that far off. Like they show them a good, easy. Like this is how our arm should be. But then you show them things that they really need to know and they probably don't know. And that's when they're like, they start to feel comfortable with you. By the time the hour is up, they're like, yeah, I want to learn more. I want, <laughs> I want to know more. So that's how I usually grow my business. It's just by creating a network of relationships. Great advice to finish on.
0: Yeah. Thank Fully you. Fully on board with that. Fully on board. <laughs> so anyone what anyone that wants to, I don't even mention the website there, but social media wise, where can people find you?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty much any of the social media is at Lee Taft. Uh, you can find me YouTube. I think it's uh, it's uh, you know just if you Google Lee Taft or uh, uh, actually I don't even know what it is. It might be the speed. I don't know. I just know I do a lot of stuff. Behind, but but I think if they Google Lee Taft, they'll find it. They'll and, find uh, yeah, absolutely. yeah. Good man. Well,
0: thank thank you very much for giving up part of your afternoon to speak to me today. I really appreciate it. It's um yeah. Great to chat. Thank you very well, much.
1: Thank you, Rob. And thank you for all you do. Your, your your guests and stuff are so educational and you're doing a great job for all of us to get better. So thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Thanks, Lee. Absolutely. Thank you.
0: Thanks for tuning in to episode 304 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. hope you enjoyed the chat with Lee. So big thanks to Lee for giving up his time and coming on this episode to chat change direction, deceleration, and everything in between. So thank you to Hawking Dynamics, to iMeasureU, Athletemonitoring.com and Omega Wave for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run in its current form without these guys. So if you are in the market for any of these products, make sure you go check them out. So thanks again for your support and I will chat to you next week.